0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, October 30th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the escalating war between the Russian Federation and Ukraine as Moscow withdraws from uh, the international grain deal uh, due to attacks on its fleets uh, in the Black Sea. Women in South Sudan are being serviced by a medical clinic uh, designed to address their problems inside the country. The Somalian government has announced that more than 100 people were killed in two car bomb attacks in Mogadishu over the weekend. And China-Africa solidarity is being exemplified by youth in various states across the continent. In the second hour, we look at the continuing inequality which exists uh, within African states. We also examine the current crisis in Haiti and the broad opposition to Western imperialist intervention. Finally, we listened to an extended recent interview with writer and activist Julia Wright. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. uh, We'll take our musical interlude, and we'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
2: solo let's make a
3: Ala kono sila sila meni, te diangu I'm not going to nankela able to Audio, prayer, I can baikero, believe I can't believe I can't I can't believe I can't believe Afamuna alakoron sila tamachi na be, ayi malenulakoron sila la meni. Afamuna alakoron sila tamachi la, musolura koron sila tamaki obu meni. Alubaki umala koron, don't go let the day end, kuma dey fola. Alubaki umala koron, don't go
4: tu sais que beaucoup trop font le plongeon, beaucoup trop de puissants d'électionnent mon balcon je ne vois que des corbeaux euh, Pour ainsi dire à tous j'aimerais
2: leur mettre la cordeau
4: Sommes profités de tout ce qui fitait, vraie première récompense, boulot pas pain péter, tout ce que rien ne croit qu'on I
5: Rekandi trame, inguva yangu. Rekandi fare, di inguva yacu. Rekandi trame, di trame nasi. Rekaja kadaro, guva yemafaro. Di andi trame,
2: Eh, mulé ma changola, aïe oué, mulé ma changola, kafantuwa bichila, meneke no mouen, kupanza bamushime, meneke no mulé ma changola, mulé é mulé ma you are a you well, Mulemba Shangola? Are you well, Are you well, Gola? Are you well, Payia? Etu Mute. Hmm. Eh, Mulemba Shangola. Are you well, Mulemba Shangola? Eh, Mulemba Shangola. Are you well, Mulemba Shangola?
3: Mulembera Milena, Kalundu.
2: Fica no Zolotum É, Mulemba Sangola Aiu é Mulemba Sangola É, Mulemba Sangola Aiu é mulher Sangola
5: Salvador da tradição Mulemba Sangola Unidas nações Vos agora
2: É, Mulemba Sangola
5: Ai, ué, mulher
2: baixa Ê, mulher baixa gola. Ai, ué, mulher baixa
1: The African Journal, this special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, October 30th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was a collection of uh, African music uh, from numerous artists from different parts uh, of uh, the African continent that we heard uh, just now, uh, Bonga, uh, Mulemba, Zangola. Uh, then we heard uh, Louis Nguanga, Rumba All the Way. She won't Maria, Marea and Yakufara. Uh, we also heard uh, the likes of Oliver Tukudzi, uh, Bopal Mansiamina, uh, Marcia Silvia, uh, Sekuba Bambino, uh, Le Go de Coteba, and uh, Mapumba Kotoja. Yes, uh, taken uh, from uh, Putumayo Records, uh, released uh, in 2008 under the title of African Party. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the ongoing war uh, in uh, Eastern Europe uh, between the Russian Federation and uh, the Ukraine government uh, backed uh, by the United States and NATO. According uh, to the TASS news agency, fragments of drones used by the Kiev regime to stage a terror attack in Sevastopol have been spotted and raised to the surface. Uh, the Russian Defense Ministry said this earlier today. Following the October 29 terror attack on Russian Black Sea fleet and civil ships used to ensure security of the grain corridor, fragments of naval unmanned aerial vehicle used by the Kiev regime under the supervision of representatives of the United Kingdom have been spotted and raised to the surface, the statement said. Marine drones uh, that attacked uh, Sevastopol uh, were launched from the seacoast near Odessa, the Russian Defense Ministry said. Specialists of the Russian Defense Ministry jointly with representatives from other state agencies Examine the Canadian-made navigation modules of the Marine drones. Based on the results of data retrieved uh, from the navigation receiver memory, it was established that the Marine unmanned aerial vehicles had been launched from the coast near Odessa, the statement read. One of the drones that attacked uh, Sevastopol might have been launched uh, from a civilian vessel shipping agricultural products from Ukrainian ports. Uh, the Russian Defense Ministry said, quote, According to specialists, it the launching point within the Grain Corridor in the Black Sea may mean that this vehicle was launched uh, from a civilian ship chartered by Kiev and its Western sponsors to export agricultural products from Ukraine's seaports, uh, the statement said. that were launched uh, from the coast near Odessa flew along the Grain Corridor and then turned towards a Russian naval base in Sevastopol. The Russian Defense Ministry said, quote, it has been established that the Marine unmanned aerial vehicles were launched from the coast near Odessa. The Marine drone flew uh, in the security zone of the grain quarter and later changed the route towards a Russian naval base in Sevastopol, it said, adding that the coordinates of the movement of one of the Marine drones that attacked Sevastopol quote, indicate a launch point in the waters within the security zone of the Grain Corridor in the Black Sea, unquote. Uh, in other news, it says that according to the Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Igor um, uh, Saturday's uh, terror attack on Sevastopol was engineered under the direction of the British specialists in the city of Oshakov. Russian aviation missile and artillery troops delivered a strike at a training center in Ukraine uh, during the uh, what is the ongoing special operation forces near the Orchikov of the Nikolayev region. Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Igor Konoshevtov said this uh, earlier today. A strike was delivered uh, at a training center of special operation forces of the Ukrainian army near the city of Ochakov. In the Nikolaev region, he said, adding Russian forces hit a Ukrainian Army communications center near the settlement of bel in the Kursan region, a munitions depot near Kupyansk and the Kharkov region, 68 artillery units at firing positions, manpower, and weapons in 189 locations. According to the ministry, Saturday's terror attack in Sevastopol, was engineered under the direction of British specialists in the city of Ochakov. And uh, according to the uh, Russian ambassador to the United States, the reaction by U.S. authorities to a terrorist attack on the port of Sevastopol is appalling, a Russian ambassador to Washington, Toly Antonov, said uh, yesterday answering questions uh, by the media. He said that, quote, Washington's reaction to the terrorist attack on the report of Sevastopol is truly outrageous that uh, we have not seen any signs of condemnation of the reckless actions by the kiev regime instead all the indications that the british military specialists were involved in organizing today's massive strike with the use of drones are disregarded uh, the envoy said as quoted by the embassy's press service and uh, you can read uh, these articles and reports in detail over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, uh, in Central Africa, in a country where the maternal mortality rate is one of the highest in the world, a small clinic dedicated to reproductive health care for more than 200,000 people is about to be shut down. The worried-looking mothers know too well what might happen next. If the hospital closes, we will die more because we are poor, said one expected mother who gave her name only as T. she was attending a monthly checkup at the men command reproductive health clinic in this town on the white nile river and it might be her last the united nations has said it intends to end the clinic's operations by december because of a lack of funding from european and other supporters it is just one casualty among many in developing countries as humanitarian donors have been stretched uh, by one crisis after another from COVID-19 to Russia's uh, special military operations in Ukraine, the United Nations will not say how much it costs to run the clinic. A loss like this clinic is of critical importance uh, for people in places like Ming Khan, uh, which along with the rest of South Sudan has struggled to cope with the aftermath of a five-year civil war. Climate shocks like widespread flooding and lingering insecurity that includes shocking rates of violence. The United Nations Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan has said the war in Ukraine has led to a dramatic cut in funding for emergency medical care for people who have been assaulted. It is not the violence ebbs and flows. It's going on all the time, largely unseen, Commissioner Barney Afako said. The commission also has asserted that the government has failed to invest in basic services like health care. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In uh, Somalia, uh, twin car bomb explosions targeting the Somalian Education Ministry building in the capital of Mogadishu on yesterday killed at least 100 people and injured more than 300 others. Somalian uh, President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud said this earlier today. The fatalities are likely to rise from Mohammed Told media after visiting the bomb site on early uh, during the early morning hours of today, several government offices, hotels, and restaurants are situated near the bombing site. An unspecified number of people, including journalists and police officers, were among the casualties. Sadiq Dudiushi, spokesperson of the Somalian police force, uh, said this earlier today. The Al Qaeda-linked Al Shabaab group, uh, which often targets the capital and controls large parts of the country, have claimed responsibility. Somalia Prime Minister Hamza Abdi Bari, while condemning the attack, said such actions by al-Shabaab won't stop the government's commitment to eradicating terrorism in any form. The African Union Transition Mission in Somalia in a statement called for sustained military operations against the insurgents so as to suppress surging terror attacks in the country. The United Nations Assistance Mission in Somalia tweeted, quote, wishes a speedy recovery for those injured and stands resolutely with all Somalians against terrorism. The blast came as the Somalian president and leaders of the federal member states, including security officials, were meeting to discuss ongoing offensive operations against al-Shabaab. And uh, finally, uh, young Chinese people in the era are confident, aspirational, and responsible. That's according to... Uh, to an editorial note uh, from the global times with a global vision uh, the chinese youth stand at the forefront of the times ready to fully commit uh, to a more global outlook as a group with a strong sense of motivation young chinese people accept and quickly respond to the world's trending schools of thought some members of china's generation z have begun to practice the tenets of their global citizen identity and use their thought processes and actions to influence the society. The Global Times has therefore launched a series of introductory stories to China's Gen Zers uh, who are interested in different global topics, such as environmental protection, equality, and employment issues, and invites them to share their stories, sentiments, and ideas on social media platforms. And uh, you can read more uh, on these developments involving uh, Chinese youth and their solidarity efforts uh, with African youth on the continent by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire and that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal and in concluding this segment we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to, of course, uh, have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the pan-African journal for this week. The Southern uh, Soul sound of Candy Staten uh, with the tune entitled "Sweet Feeling," and listening to the Pan African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And right now, we want to move into a segment uh, analyzing uh, the widespread opposition in Haiti to United States and possible NATO intervention uh, in that Caribbean island nation. And of course, uh, it has even. Uh, been threatened to be brought before uh, the United Nations Security Council. Uh, however, the United States did not have the votes uh, to authorize another, yet another uh, military invasion of Haiti. Let's listen to this report.
6: Haiti's government asks for foreign help, but Haitians remain reluctant, with thousands demanding a new government instead. But could foreign intervention prevent Haiti's further descent into gang-ridden chaos or stop the growth of its democracy? I'm Andrea Sankin and today's newsmaker is The Crisis in Haiti. Fifteen months ago, Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse, was assassinated. It sent a nation already in crisis into even further chaos. Moïse's appointed successor, Ariel Henry, has been in power ever since and is now calling on the international community to intervene. Now, he wants a specialized armed force to come in and quell the unrest, mostly fueled by increasingly powerful gangs. But for many Haitians, foreign help may do more harm than good.
7: No to the Canadians, no to the Americans, you are monsters, you don't have solutions, you are chaos, you are behind the gangsterization of crime, you are giving arms to our brothers and those who are in underprivileged neighborhoods. Freedom, we are not the states of the United States, we are not provinces of the United States, we are a country,
8: we are a republic, they cannot give us orders, this time we do not need them. If Ariel Henry does not resign and the bank officials don't change their minds, we will make a revolution in the country.
9: This request
4: is an unconstitutional act. This is an act against the state. It is an action against the Haitian people's demands, who want a free country where everyone can eat, have health care and live like human beings.
6: Whether it's foreign intervention or a change in government, something drastic needs to happen but the people of Haiti don't appear to be on the same page as their leaders. Powerful gangs have taken control of the country's main port and are blocking vital fuel supplies. The UN has imposed heavy sanctions on one of the country's most powerful gang leaders but it's not enough to curb the unfolding crisis. At least 30 percent of the population needs some kind of emergency relief including more than two million children. Almost half the country is facing acute food insecurity fuel and medicine are in short supply and nearly three-quarters of the country's major hospitals have no electricity plus with gangs gaining power by the day hundreds are being killed and more than 25,000 Haitians have been displaced now the international community admits Haiti urgently needs help but they can't quite agree on what should be done Still, Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, says her country will not stand by and do nothing while Haitians are in trouble. Canada and the international community are
9: concerned about the violence in Haiti, in particular against women and girls. Canada will not remain idle while gangs and those who support them terrorize Haiti's
6: citizens, and we will continue to support law-abiding Haitians to put an end to the crisis in their country. But so far, Canada has only sent a fact-finding mission to assess the situation. And it remains to be seen if any other nation will go further than that in spite of the government's calls. So, joining me now to discuss what Haiti needs is from Washington, Haiti's ambassador to the United States, Boshi Edmond. Thank you so much for being with us. Let me first start by getting your assessment of just how desperate the situation is right now, because some are describing it as a... Descent into anarchy even i mean is haiti at the depths of despair so to speak
10: uh i wouldn't say no uh but where and when in a country of four million kids cannot go back to school grandma and grandpa they cannot go to the hospital if they need care because all roads are blocked when any patient who want to go for a dialysis cannot go to the hospital. Those are very dire situations. And therefore, it is very important for the government to take action. And those actions mm-hmm. that used to be taken before, through so the national police against, against the armed gangs, are not getting the results because the power Far, the firepower of those armed gangs are even far superior than the national police. Therefore, it is very important, since we are living in a global village, to request international assistance
6: Okay. so we okay. can face
10: and quell the gangs.
6: Right. Um, just quickly, though, for those who argue that Haiti now qualifies as a failed state, what do you say to that?
10: I wouldn't say Haiti is qualified for a failed state. I would say, rather, that Haiti uh, is the country that is facing some uh, difficulties uh, through its institutions, and but I would say that we are not a failed state. We are a state that having some, uh, you know, incapacity of uh, helping all institutions to function very well. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we are failed. We are not. But this is a difficult moment as any other nation went through those difficult moments. Some nations went to civil war. They went through all those great depression, everything, but they, they came out. But oh. oh. I believe that's a moment of Haiti to come out because once all Haitians, all political stakeholders, all members of the civil society, when they realize that there is a need and the urgency is now to come together. So we can work things out and make sure, with the help of our international partners, we come back.
6: And, of course, the United States has proposed then, to those ends, a a multilateral rapid reaction force led by what they've called a a partner country with deep and necessary experience. But in other words, one that is not led by the United States. Uh, So how much would you welcome specifically that kind of force? where the u.s and specifically the u.s is not in the lead
10: but listen uh the the u.s may not be in the lead like to be part of those uh of the of the any striking force that could have come to help the national police but first of all let me clarify something uh we are not calling for an occupation of our territory what we are calling for as a member of the international community, we are calling for international assistance to accompany the national police to do a better job. Mm. Because Mm. once we have that assistance, they will have more equipment, they will have more training, and the result is gonna be more impactful. Therefore, uh, even though the U.S. is not part, but the U.S. has been helping, particularly uh, by giving the, the national police uh, training and equipment, and I believe, to some extent, they will be there as well.
6: Do you sympathize at all, then, with the, the many Haitians who don't want any you know, foreign inter- intervention, not least because of the tragic history that foreign interventions have had?
10: I, I agree with them, and I respect their opinion. It's, uh, I understand that, uh, uh, but as you know, it's a social dynamic, uh, in any society, you will never find everyone agree on one point. There will be always some uh, dissension. There will be always some disagreement. We respect that, but I would say that to them: uh, we only have one force, the national police. They have tried very hard. There is no result so far, and taking over the gangs. As a matter of fact, many police officers have been killed. Now, when you have a situation where four million kids cannot go back to school, when all those people who need care cannot go get access to the hospital.
6: Right, I, I, One, I know we, the conditions are so dire and I know there is desperate need for help, but, but let's look at it from both sides. Uh, the truth is many Haitians see this as what would be an effort to prop up a leader that they did not elect, and that's some even defined as a, just a step away from being a dictator. All out, and then on the other side, you know, the the countries that you're asking for help fear very much that they'd be stepping into a quagmire because the people on the ground don't want them, and they would be seen as those propping up. You know, some. Go ahead.
10: That's logical here. No one would come, even though uh, Prime Minister Henry would have uh, uh, left today. The one that who would come after him won't have any legitimacy either. I mean, no one now, now, it is not a matter of thinking that uh, uh, any uh, kind of international assistance will pop up the current the prime minister. This is not the issue. The issue is, in this kind of environment, the main objective, which is to hold free, fair, and democratic elections, cannot be happening in this such environment. Therefore, there has to be someone leading and to take those decisions, and I believe uh, we, we continue, and the prime minister is continuing uh, and seeking a solution and a consensus and with other political parties from the different uh, parties of the opposition so they can have a kind of con- national consensus and to move forward. Because now it is not the time to look for who's legitimate or not. Mm. No one would... But they do want after.
6: to look forward. They do want to know what's next. If this force comes in again, as they feel would prop up someone that hasn't been elected and they believe just wants to hold on to power, what follows that? Fine. It if you not, try to break uh, the back of the not, gangs, break the backs of the gangs, who, who takes power then? A, do you pave the way to elections?
10: Of course. The prime minister will, be, will still be there, and I believe uh, right now I can tell you that there is uh, a still negotiation going on with different uh, sectors of the opposition parties, and I do believe uh to what i was told uh there would be uh, soon an agreement, uh and once we have that an international assistance that will help us to clear the woods and to take over the gangs and to restore law and order and to make sure okay. security we, we establish then we will continue to work to pave the way to uh, a, 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 a consensus within the political parties have an electoral council and work for uh, uh, putting, uh, uh, you know, laying out all those uh, necessary requirements to have free, fair, and democratic elections. Ambassador so Edmund. Himself, He said that. He, he really wants to le- be okay. out of job. His mission was to hold elections, and he's carrying out that.
6: Ambassador Edmund, really, thank you so much for being with us on the Newsmakers. Greatly appreciate it.
10: Happy to be with you.
6: Well, let's broaden out the discussion now and introduce two new panelists. And from Boston, we have Brian Conkannon. He's a human rights lawyer and the founder of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. And from New York, we have Kim Ives. He is the editor at Haiti Liberté, a weekly newspaper. Thanks both so much for being with me. Uh, Brian, you just heard that conversation there. We know how many Haitians do not want this foreign intervention, I mean, especially given the history, but... Haiti is desperate. So is there a way to get it right this time by bringing in foreign troops, maybe not Western troops, but just to quell some of the violence, break the control of the gangs, and lay the groundwork for new elections?
7: There is a way to get it right and to lay the groundwork for fair elections, but that does not involve sending foreign troops into Haiti. Haitians know their situation better than anybody else. And as you can see from the footage you've been showing, they don't want foreign troops. They know that foreign troops will inevitably be coming to prop up the the, the government that is now in power and has been dismantling Haiti's government for for the last 11 years. Okay, so what's the alternative? the alternative is what Haitians have been shouting on the streets, in the media, wherever they can. It is to stop propping up the repressive government and allow a Haitian solution to emerge. Okay, there but are, how do you get organized. the
6: gangs under control?
7: First of all, you stop supporting the government that is fueling the gangs and mm. supporting them. And second, you let Haitians do it. And we're always discussing this in, you know, among non-Haitians. And Haitians say, let us do it. Step one is you get the repressive government out. We have plans. We've been organizing. We've been meeting for for months, for years on how this is going to come out. And I think we owe it to Haitians to allow them to implement their solution.
6: So the civil society you're saying are the viable alternative. There, There is leadership in the waiting. There is a way to do this peacefully because it is so complex. I mean, the power struggles here, the corruption behind it, uh, the complicity of businesses and political elite, it, it sounds like a huge task. And just getting the violence under control, it's, it's, it's hard to see how just civil society could handle that right now. But you believe it's true. Uh, let me ask you, a- I, I just want to get Kim into the conversation. Uh, Kim, because are, are you on the same page there?
11: Yeah, I totally agree with uh, Brian. I mean, <laughs> look at Haiti from 1791 to 1804. We could say it's a failed state, it's um, anarchy, et cetera. But, I mean, this is a foundational principle of all uh, nations, self-determination. Let the Haitians build their own society in their own way. They don't need uh, some uh, mischief from, uh, or crimes even, from Uh, foreigners who have already got that track record in Haiti.
6: So is there any role for foreign powers to play, just to help, just to assist? You know, the the ambassador was saying there, it's just to come help our national police forces get the training and understanding they need on how to fight this battle better. No, there is certainly...
7: Sorry, go
11: Okay. No, I, I don't think... You know, it's the thin edge of the wedge. Look at Vietnam. It started with Special Forces advisors, and then it'll escalate. No, let the Haitians sort it out. They uh, have been trying to for for decades now, and uh, each time the U.S. comes in and just makes matters worse. And a lot of the um, difficulty we see, and even the whole framing of it, the framing of gangs, I mean, this is a trope, and it's uh, just... Uh, a a distortion of the reality to create a pretext for U.S. intervention, maybe the U.S. leading from behind, from behind Canada or whoever, but it's uh, essentially U.S. intervention.
6: Is it though, Brian, let me ask you, because, you know, many observers say these gangs really are all controlling. They've just completely uh, destabilized everything down to the very basic daily lives of Haitians that just can't go on living. Um, and let me ask you this as well: do any of these gangs actually you know claim to represent the people as a rebel group uh, might might do in, in a struggle for for liberty and equality, um, or are they strictly out for power and, and personal gain?
7: First of all, you need to understand that gangs are inevitable in a country that is not providing basic government services to its people, so unless we address that long term issue, you're not going to have any uh, real progress against the gangs, and going back to the last uh, international military intervention against gangs from 2004 to 2017, there was a UN mission that spent nine billion dollars, and the way that they that that they addressed gang violence was hunting down and executing poor. Uh, or men and young and boys in poor neighborhoods. That did, in fact, reduce gang violence temporarily, mm. but it, it sowed the seeds for what we have now, which is a much worse problem. So you can't you can't cannot extricate the current gang issue from the long-term interference in Haiti's government, nor the current government's dismantling of Haiti's uh, of Haiti's democracy.
6: Right. Brian, I'm asking you both, Kim and you, this question. Brian, I'll start with you though, because um, as for the other side of the equation, you know, we've been seeing that no foreign power really is is eager to get involved in this. Um, Do they see this as a potential quagmire? I mean, is the help that this government is asking for actually a non-issue anyway? Because nobody wants to put their troops on the ground
7: at this point, nobody wants to put their troops on the ground, but the United States and Canada are every day pushing people in the governments in the Caribbean, governments in Africa to send troops. They're going to keep promising more and more incentives for those countries to do it. Uh, hopefully they won't, but the, the United States and Canada are not going to give up. And Haitians are very afraid that there will be forces. And uh, even even if they're led by by other people of African descent, they'll still see them as an occupying force.
6: Okay, Kim. do you think that's true? Even non-Western forces would be seen as occupiers?
11: Absolutely, everybody knows that the um, gorilla in the room, uh, the 600 pound elephant, if you will, is the US. They are the ones who have been intervening in Haiti for a century. This would be the fourth time if they come in and they always are hiding behind a fig leaf. It looks like the UN is not gonna work for them, the OAS would need uh, 23 countries to vote to uh, enact the uh, Inter-American Charter Clause that allows an OAS force to go in, as it did into Dominican Republic in 65. That's not going to happen. So probably they'll try an arrangement uh, similar to what they did in Grenada in 1983, find a few fig leaves in Mm -hmm. the Caribbean, maybe the Bahamas, maybe St. Lucia, who knows, and uh, try to come in. But The the real muscle is the U.S. behind the scene. And fundamentally, that's why they're talking about bilateral. The U.S. has a new formula called the Global Fragility Act. They're trying to create a bilateral arrangement with Haiti where they can put a base of U.S. troops in Haiti for a decade. And the problem is they don't have a government to do the inviting, so they're trying to slip it in through the U.N.
6: Okay, Uh, Brian, I'm going to return to something you were kind of explaining earlier on about the role that civil society could play because, I mean, you believe the U.S. could do better than backing uh, Prime Minister Ariel Henry. So talk about the other options. And and why is the U.S. kind of so dedicated, it seems, to this man who was never actually legitimately elected anyway?
7: There's a long-term policy of the U.S. Trying to stifle democracy in Haiti, and that goes back to you know not recognizing Haiti when it became the the, the, the second free country in the Americas in eighteen o four right up through the marine occupation last century the the overthrow of President Aristide in two thousand and four and the the Minusta troops there's also the short term of the of, of the current administration. Uh, propping up the Henri government. that All of that is putting Haiti in a deep hole. There are no viable short-term solutions to that. It's going to be a long fight against the violence. It's going to be a long fight to reestablish democracy, to have fair elections. But what Haitians are saying is you've got to start that now, that continuing mm-hmm. to prop up the current government is only going to make things worse, that having an international force is only going to make things worse and that what we need is a clean break from the current government, a clean break from two centuries of the U.S. imposing its will on Haiti and start marching towards a viable solution by allowing Haitians to take charge of their own destiny. It's not going to be easy, but we need to start right now.
6: So not sending any foreign assistance. As for what's being asked for now, would essentially you think force uh, Prime Minister Henri to at least negotiate with civil society? Um, I've even heard mention of the Montana Accord. I don't know what other players are really significant enough to go to bat for that civil society, but is is that what you see the track? Uh, laid down. Haitians
7: are confident that, that if the U.S. stopped propping up uh, Prime Minister Henry, he would be forced to leave or at least make meaningful concessions. And they think that can lead towards towards a solution. And that's really what they're asking the international community to do.
6: Okay. Kim? Yes.
11: Uh, well, you know, the U.S. always comes in uh, framing it that they're helping in uh, Two thousand and four they came in, or in one thousand nine hundred and ninety four they came in supposedly to reestablish democracy, but their intervention was essentially to stop a revolution and that 's the same thing today the uh, what is referred to as the gangs is uh, again I, I say a trope because mm. yes the u s has been debilitating the Haitian state since the rise of Aristide thirty years ago, and the result is there were criminal Gangs that did emerge. But in response to them, there were anti criminal armed groups that came to fight crime in their neighborhoods. And they're proposing a revolution. They are proposing mm. a social revolution. And that is the big fear of the United States. They are coming in to get those people. That's okay. Uh,
6: Quickly, though, Kim, I mean, just as far as as getting the gangs under control, you know, the the United Nations at least uh, agreed on on sanctioning one of the main gang leaders, um, Barbecue, they call him, Jimmy Charizier. Um, Is that at least helpful, trying to at least control, in some sense, the flow of weapons that he can get, his access to funds to continue with criminality? Does it help?
11: Not at all. Uh, To me, uh, this is a genuine, authentic, organic response. This is a revolutionary force, in our opinion. Uh, He has been demonized. He has been uh, uh, the target of a national endowment for democracy, a cutout of the CIA campaign Mm -hmm. for uh, the past three or four years uh, to make him into this monster. But he is simply demanding... Roads, schools, hospitals, clinics, so, sanitation, I mean, the internet. Uh, and this is, this is his message. This is what he's aiming for and to stop. So quickly, I, the, I mean, we, the, we only have a so, minute left.
6: Are, are we doing an absolute injustice to these gangs by seeing them in the media painted as criminal networks rather than what you're kind of describing yes. as liberation heroes? Really? Brian, yes. Brian you yes. agree there too?
7: My, my my information from the people I talk to in haiti um they they I would not agree with Tim to the extent that that uh, the gangs are seen as as positive forces by mm. most of the people that that i'm working on working with um, but in terms of you know any kind of sanctions, whether it's arms, interdictions, whether it's financial sanctions an important part is it needs to go up the ladder to the people who are directing this and that includes government officials it includes business leaders and too often the 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 punishment is reserved for often poor people living in poor neighborhoods mm-hmm. and who who are replaceable and it's it doesn't go after the people who are really behind the repression
6: okay Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end it there. We are completely out of time for this edition of the Newsmakers. But thank you both so much for uh, your valuable contributions. Really interesting. And our viewers, of course, for for joining us as well. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and do be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm Andrea Sankey. We'll see you next time.
1: That was a report and a debate on the current uh, social crisis in uh, the Republic of Haiti, uh, where the United States, along with its allies, are, of course, planning uh, some type of uh, military intervention in Haiti, yet again, uh, after a series of uh, interventions uh, dating back at least until uh, 1915. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday October the 30th, uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to hear excerpts from another report uh, dealing with the question of inequality in Africa. Let's listen in.
12: China Global Television Network.
0: According to a World Bank report, South Africa is the most unequal country in the world, where 10% of the population owns over 80% of the country's wealth. However, inequality is not isolated to South Africa alone. Oxfam reports that Africa is the second most unequal continent in the world and home to seven of the most unequal countries. While the richest Africans are getting richer, extreme poverty on the continent is rising. This week on the show, we examine the causes of economic inequality in Africa and ways of bridging the divide. I'm Beatrice Marshall, welcome to Talk Africa. A recent rise in the cost of living globally has exposed just how poor some families in Africa have become. Before we begin our discussion, let's hear what some from across the continent have to say about this glaring inequality.
8: So do you feel your country is equal or unequal? If not, why?
0: country is very unequal. Kenya is the most
8: unequal country, one of the most unequal countries in the world. And when Kenyans are uh, dying because of droughts, We are surprised the President of the Republic has not appealed to the private sector to contribute their part. So that we don't have, we have 4 million people. How much is money generated by Savaricom and the other farms? We don't need need to have hunger when we have so many people having so much. At the moment
13: I think it's very unequal. Um, It was unequal 25 years ago. Um, I think a lot of steps have been taken. Uh, from a BEE perspective, to try and make it equal, but quite frankly, I don't think it's really—it's worked to a large extent. Um, a very small percentage of the South African population owns a very large percentage of the wealth. I don't think that's going to change in a hurry. Um, I feel that a large part of the inequality is definitely a racial, a historical racial inequality. Um, but I, I believe that our government has had 25 years to try and fix that. And I think they've attempted to fix it in the wrong way.
1: I don't think it's equal. I feel like um, the margin between the rich and the poor is
14: very
2: wide. Yeah, so the, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. Um, I don't uh, think the poor have a lot of access to opportunities that would enable
1: them to get rich. I think the, I think, I don't think it's equal. It's very unequal.
13: I think the best way the government can do is to create more jobs to the peoples so that there will be equal fish. I feel they should have focused on improving your education for the large part of our population. Because education is the key to to knowledge and not being taken advantage of. Um, Government did away with trades many, many years ago. Companies used to be incentivized to train tradespeople and that's disappeared. And I feel that if people had the ability to work for themselves, uh, they can feed their families.
9: I'm aware that what I would say would sound easier said than done, but the truth is to put money back in the pockets of the common man. For example, small businesses. Small businesses still need to go through a lot of processes. Yes, the government has tried in a little bit of that to mitigate their taxations or how long, but then it's still a huge lot of things with cases of power outages, situations of unemployment, things that have to do with high cost of transportation, a situation whereby there's free education, free transportation, free healthcare, and zero taxes for businesses until they attain a certain level. This will be ways to save money and, like I said, put money back in the hands of these common people. That way, they will be able to, in a little way, bridge the gap in the obvious inequality, like I would like to say.
0: joining me now to take a closer look at inequality in africa are from johannesburg michael sudakasa economist and chairman of the africa business group from lagos dr muda yusuf ceo of the center for promotion of private enterprise and former director general of the lagos chamber of commerce and industry and from london Reginald kazutu financial and economic analyst and chief executive officer at amana capital limited gentlemen welcome to the program Reginald, if I may start off with you, because let's begin by looking at available statistics. According to Oxfam, Africa is the second most unequal continent in the world and home to seven of the most unequal countries. Paint for us a picture of the realities of the inequality gap in Africa today.
9: Thank you, Beatrice. Inequality on the continent uh, of of Africa is, is primarily because of the rate of growth of return for the different sectors of production. So in an economy, you have uh, capital, you have land, you have entrepreneurship, and you have uh, labor. And if you look historically for the last 20 or more years, uh, capital has been uh, rewarded. Uh, People that own land have been rewarded, case in point Kenya, where land prices can double and uh, triple. A few entrepreneurs who have uh, actually come up with... Other um, businesses or ideas to the market have also been rewarded, taking point, uh, the technology side of the continent. If you look at uh, the digital payment platforms from Nigeria, mm-hmm. uh, from Kenya, from South Africa. But the problem that we have is that majority of the only source or factor of production that most people on the continent own is labor. And, and if you look at the real wage growth on the continent, it has actually been negative for the last 10, 15 years. So as long as labor is not rewarded uh, the gap between uh, the rich and the poor becomes bigger even as economic growth increases because it's only rewarding those who own capital. So if you go across the the, the spectrum of the continent as long as we are still a labor intensive uh, continent um, this problem is going to continue continue remaining.
0: Michael Now, according to the World Bank, Sub-Saharan Africa now accounts for 60% of the world's population in extreme poverty. Why does inequality seem more pronounced in Africa?
12: Africa is still trying to recover from the economic doldrums of the COVID-19 period. We were able to get through that period with far fewer uh, levels of mortality than some other parts of the world. But the shutdowns on the continent, the shutdowns in the world, really constricted our economies. We started last year and early this year to rebound, only to be immediately met by the impact of the war that's happening in Ukraine. So our economies have not really moved. The beneficiaries, if you will, of the opening up of the world have been a, a much smaller community of economic actors on the continent. And so the proverbial rich getting richer has happened because that community of, of actor has had access to capital, has had access to markets, while most on the continent have been still hampered by, one, inflation. Um, currencies on the continent over the last six months have all declined to the value of the dollar, so things are more expensive. And we are uh, an agriculturally-based society, and so we haven't had necessarily the ability to trade our way back into economic growth. And those who had capital have been able to invest if they wanted to and improve their positions, particularly as right. the, the, the relative worth in terms of assets in local currency has gone down.
0: But, Michael, we still see that South Africa is ranked as the most unequal country
12: in the world. And South Africa still very much is grappling with what I'll call its apartheid hangover. The wealth in this country is really still in the hands of of the ruling party before the 94 elections. There have been different efforts, broad-based black economic empowerment um, efforts to create a more inclusive society, but they haven't really achieved what I'm sure the late uh, Nelson, President Nelson Mandela, had hoped. So you still have roughly 10 to 15 percent of the economy, right. uh, of the population owning uh, the majority of the economy. That keeps South Africa separate and quite unequal.
0: So, Dr. Yusuf, prior to the pandemic and for about two decades, you know, African economies had strong and consistent economic growth. But looking at the inequality statistics today, it does seem evident that the human development and poverty indicators did not progress as expected. Why not?
8: It boils down to first the fact that economies on the continent are not inclusive economies. Secondly, also to some macroeconomic management issues, uh, the structure of government spending, there isn't enough expenditure on on social sector, expenditure on education, expenditure on health, and taking care of the environment. The emphasis uh, is not is not much there uh, at the governance level. Then, of course, the macroeconomic management in many of the uh, countries on the continent, also contribute a lot to to this problem of poverty and the widening gap. For instance, issues of high inflation, Mm -hmm. issues of inappropriate subsidies, you know, we channel resources into wrong places and benefiting the wrong people. All of those things create very serious issues for for the poor, particularly from the point of view of the purchasing power, the erosion of uh, real incomes. And all of that. So all of these things, you know, contribute a great deal. Then in many of the countries also on the continent, there are issues of trade openness. Many of them are not very open to issues of trade. Mm -hmm. And trade, you know, has a way of creating competition and improving welfare and creating more jobs.
0: So, um, Reginald, let me get your view here as well, because um, it, it does seem that there are many factors that are affecting uh, inequality and poverty across the, uh, the continent. But from an economic and development standpoint, why exactly does inequality matter?
9: Inequality matters because the, the whole purpose of uh, running a country, the whole purpose of uh, structuring economy is to uplift people from, from poverty and and um you are not able to do that fast enough if you do not have upward mobility uh from your your lowest uh income earners and they do not have upward mobility over over the years so if you look example at china what china has been able to do is to uplift lift a lot of people that were considered poor um into middle income uh class uh, kind of people So inequality becomes important in Africa because then our structure of our economies, yes, it is giving us economic growth, Mm -hmm. but that growth, as Dr. Yusuf has said, is not inclusive. And the only way you can measure whether your growth is inclusive is looking at the gap between the richest and um, the poorest in terms of either income or in terms of of, of wealth. So if we're going to have higher standards of living, uh, sustained economic growth, um, less conflicts, less crime, less uh, vulnerability to curable diseases, then you need to lift up a lot of people from poverty uh, and reduce that gap between uh, the rich and the poor.
0: Dr. Yusuf, let me get an example from uh, Nigeria being one of Africa's uh, larger economies and of course being um, you know, in, in the largest oil producer here. What would you say are some of the issues that have contributed uh, to Nigeria's crisis in terms of uh, poverty levels? Because we understand that uh, half of uh, the Nigerian population is still living below the poverty line, still living in extreme poverty.
8: I think the critical factors are structural factors. uh, Because for many of the SMEs, productivity is very low because of the state of infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure deficits in Nigeria is very, very you know, high. Uh, one of the highest that you can find on the continent, which affects productivity of small businesses. Secondly, is the macroeconomic management. Uh, just as I said, inflationary pressure is extremely high. Current inflation now is about uh, 22.5%. But effective inflation, uh, at least in the last one year, has been as high as uh, between 30 to 50%. So, inflation erodes purchasing power. It leads to a collapse of real income. So, the inflationary situation is a key problem. problem of insecurity is increasing uh, in many of our agricultural communities. And don't forget, our Greek accounts for almost 50% of, of, of our labor force. Unemployment is about 3%. Poverty incidence is about 42%. So we are dealing with people living below poverty line of almost 90 million people. Then, of course, we have the problem of climate change. Right. Only recently we are having very serious issues of flooding. You know, So that, again, is also creating a whole lot of uh, challenges. Then you have c- cultural problems inappropriate investments
1: in the social sector, oh, in right. education and in health. You know, these are some of Welcome back. And uh, those were comments uh, from Talk Africa uh, dealing uh, with the inequality uh, in Africa. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikahwe. Uh We're here on uh, Sunday. October the 30th uh, 2022 we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit and um, we'll take a break we'll be back with more of our program The voice of uh, Mabel John, uh, who uh, spent considerable time here in the city of Detroit, uh, born in Louisiana, migrated uh, during the great migration to the city in 1941, uh, signed uh, to the Tamla um, uh, in uh, the early 1960s. And, of course, uh, a great uh, rhythm and blues singer, uh, Mabel John. And we want to move right now uh, to the question of Mumia Abu-Jamal in the last program, we talked about the denial of his uh, motion for an appeal uh, that was done just earlier, uh, several days ago, uh, in uh, Common Police Court in Philadelphia. We want to hear um, a statement from uh, Julia Wright uh, from last month uh, on the status of Mumia Abu-Jamal.
14: Asada is so healing when she says uh um, the dead are gratefully dead, let's take care of the living. So let's take care of Mumia, and there's such a time factor here. And that's where Joanna was brilliant, because we're all aware that with his congestive heart failure, Mumia, if he were in the community, would have 50% chance of surviving in five years. But because he's in prison and he's a survivor of the whole for three decades and of so many comorbi- comorbidities, um, he how many years does he have left? I mean, I don't even want to think of it. And But the Department of Corrections and the FOP sure are thinking of it, okay? And that's why there are all those delaying tactics in the courts. So there's the time factor and that this is the people's papers. Is therapy for Mumia because, I, I, I don't know, I can't speak for Mumia. So, Joanna, you'd have to tell us how He'd feel healed by this. But I know that if Mumea feels sensory deprivation, we people on the outside feel sensory deprivation. And heavily so. We feel intellectually deprived and we feel leadership deprived. And that by giving us back these papers that are in the first person singular and that are mumia living and kicking and kicking and resisting is giving us back the leadership we're lacking and everything that COINTELPRO tried to take from us when they arrest our
5: leaders
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the legendary Julia Wright. Uh, Right now, we're going to move into a a rebroadcast of an interview uh, done uh, with uh, Julia Wright on October 5th uh, by WPFW out of uh, Washington, D.C. Let's listen in.
5: Lafayette. This
15: is Nikichi Taifa, civil and human rights attorney, scholar activist, freedom fighter, and bestseller author. Welcome to Human Rights and Justice, my new talk show featuring kick-ass commentary and stimulating guests. We discuss domestic and global themes, highlighting political, economic, and social rights. Get up and stand up with me, for Human Rights and Justice.
2: We declare our reign on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be
3: given the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day,
12: which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary.
15: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the fifth episode, number five, of Human Rights and Justice. All episodes can be heard and viewed in WPFW Pacifica Radio Archives, Nikichi Taifa's YouTube channel, and our website, nikichi.taifu.com, and wherever you get your podcast. Woo! I am so excited because today my featured guest is going to be none other than the great, the phenomenal Julia Wright poet essayist and daughter of the legendary writer and author Richard Wright, the author of Native Son, the author of Black Boy, the author of The Man Who Lived Underground, and who knows how many others. We're going to discuss today a number of things, the lynching of... Uh, Silas Hawkins, uh, Hoskins, who is Julia Wright's great uncle, uh, and the memorialization that just recently occurred. I'm going to just briefly touch on the Elaine Massacre, which was encompassed within all of that. The upcoming Emmett Till documentary, and of course, none other than who? Mumia Abu-Jamal. But first, we start off every episode of Human Rights and Justice with Black Facts, Black Facts that occurred during the week, called from both the Equal Justice U, uh, e- Equal Justice Institute's calendar, Brian Stevenson down there in Alabama, as well as the Black Seeds uh, calendar. So let's look and see what we have for uh, this week. Actually, hitting off of the end of last week, September 30th, we had the uh, uh, the massacre of hundreds of uh, Black people, men, women, and children in Elaine, Arkansas, just because the sharecroppers were demanding what? Not revolution. They were demanding fair prices for their crops. On October the 2nd, 1965, more than 300 activists are sent to the notorious Parchment Prison Farm for doing what? For marching against segregation and racial terrorism in Natchez, Mississippi. October third, nineteen twelve, white prisoners lynch a black man named Frank Whitfall in Wyoming State Prison. October fourth, nineteen sixteen, a white mob in Grayston, Texas lynches William Spencer, a thirty-year-old black husband and father of four children. October fifth, nineteen twenty, a mob lynches four black men in McClaney, Florida, seizing three from the county jail and shooting the fourth pit in the woods. October sixth. 2009, Justice of the Peace in Louisiana refuses to marry an interracial couple because of their race and later acknowledges that he denied marriage licenses to interracial couples for years. We're talking about the year 2009. 1963, October 7th, state troopers and local deputies Um, They join local deputies in beating and shocking with cattle prods more than 350 African-Americans as they wait in line to register to vote. Oh, my God, in Selma, Alabama. And in 1953, October 8th, Police Department in Birmingham, Alabama, cancels an interracial baseball game organized by Jackie Robinson, citing a city ordinance against, quote, mixed athletics. And then the Black Seas uh, calendar, uh, we have uh, October the 2nd. Uh, Nat Turner, freedom fighter and leader for major slave insla- rebellion, was born in 1800. Uh, October the 5th, uh, led by George Padmore, W.E.B., Du Bois, and Kwame Nkrumah, the 5th Pan-African Congress focused on the decolonization of Africa. That was in 1945. October the 6th, our wonderful, phenomenal Fannie Lou Hamer, civil rights activist born in 1917. Also Neely Fuller, uh, also on the 7th, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad uh, born. So that was our Black Facts for the week. And now, oh my goodness, I just have the honor of introducing to you our featured guest for today, Julia Wright. And I'm just going to share with you just a little bit about her um, On her biography Um, I hope I can say this Born in 1942 Can I say that? Yep, yep. 1942 Julia Wright was born to Ellen Wright and Richard Wright Three years prior to the publication of Black Boy Where Wright recounts in Chapter 2 The lynching of his uncle Silas Hoskins in Elaine, Arkansas Through her father Julia is a great-granddaughter of enslaved people, and the granddaughter of sharecroppers, as well as being part.
5: Through
15: her mother, she has lost part of her family to the Nazi ovens in Poland. Julia was educated in the country of her father's self-expatriation, France, and that's where she is calling in from here today, from Paris, France. After her father's untimely death in 1960, she taught in the Ivory Coast and was invited by the late President Kwame Nkrumah to Ghana to work on the French version of The Spark, a mouthpiece for African liberation movements, and Nkrumah invited to his newly independent country, creating liberation embassies. Julia was taught journalism by the late Dorothy Padmore, the wife of the late George Padmore, who was Kwame Nkrumah's advisor on pan-African affairs. After the 1966 coup that overthrew Nkrumah, Julia worked with James Foreman of SNCC, accompanying him to Algiers to help him compile interviews of freedom fighters who had worked with Frantz Fanon. Julia was later to be a member of the Black Panther delegation to the first pan-African cultural festival in Algiers in 1969. In 1982, Mumia Boujima wrote, from death row to Ellen and Julia in Paris to ask them to join the struggle for his release as well as for the freedom of all the caged Nelson Mandela's on U.S. soil. Forty years later, like so, so, so many other abolitionists, Julia is still at it. She is the literary executor of the estate of her father, Richard Wright. She is a poet. She is a phenomenal poet, and I think she just wrote a piece today, so I know she's going to share with us. She's a poet, and she is an essayist. So with that, I'd like to welcome you, Julia, Mama Julia, the Thank mother, the you. mama, of the Maria Bougiama movement, I <laughs> Welcome to Thank Human you. Rights and Justice, W P um S F W. Thank
14: you. Thank you for having me. I am honored. I am honored because I listened to your indictment at the uh, Spirit of Mandela Tribunal, and it sent shivers down my spine. It was so, ah, it was uplifting. Thank you, sister.
15: Well, thank you so very much. And that was actually almost uh, just about a year ago, the International Tribunal um, trying the United States on Human Rights Abuses. And I'm glad that you were able to tune in and be a part um, of that. But, um, Julia, um, so far, before we start talking about what just happened, you know, several days ago in Alabama, um, I did not know about the affiliation with the Black Panther Party. I didn't know about you going to Algiers and interviewing the Freedom Fighters um, and the like. Do you want to just say just something very briefly about that part of your your early
14: uh, history? Well, my memory is that, um, you see, my mother was a literary agent. Uh, My late mother, uh, may she rest in peace, and she would publish authors, who came to her. And one of the authors who knocked at her door one day was none other than Eldridge Cleaver by a sister who would later become my best friend, Kathleen.
15: All right. Yes, indeed. And my
14: mother was very proper. She had them for tea in her kitchen in the Rue Jacob, which was in Paris, and she had all her lovely teacups and everything. And uh, they were so respectful because uh, Eldridge loved Richard Wright. He wrote about Richard Wright uh, in his uh, um, what? Soul, soul on, soul on ice. ice. Yes, right. He He writes about my father. And so... That's when I got friendly with Kathleen and Kathleen and Eldridge asked my mother if I could accompany them to Algiers Mm -hmm. to translate for them (gasps) because of my, I was bilingual and they wouldn't trust anybody. They would trust me. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got to go. And that was wow. That was the Emery Douglas was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I the, can't the
15: illustrator, El- Emery, right? Yeah, right. yeah she, beautiful had all those pictures in the Black Panther paper newspaper. Yeah, yeah,
14: yeah, yeah. And that's where I met all these liberation movements in yeah. Algiers for the first time. Yeah. for 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 the first time after Accra, because we'd been through a coup d'état. Okay. military coup d'etat with bullets and everything, you know, the overthrow of Nkrumah.
15: Yeah, yeah, very, very, very sad. Um, Let me jump forward uh, just a little bit. Um, When did you first find out about your great uncle, Silas Hoskins, and his lynching? Can you tell us about that, and why was he lynched, and where was he lynched, and what was the significance of that? That's a
14: very good question and a very timely one. You know, reading books and rereading them is a bit like a tree grows around a pith. You read, and then you read again, and every time you read, there's a new take on the book. Mm -hmm. And the last time I read Black Boy was after George Floyd was murdered. And it was a whole new black boy to me. Mm
15: -hmm. It was chapter two. That was like the autobiography of your father, correct?
14: Absolutely. And it was a whole new book to me because of our experience, of our national experience of George Floyd.
5: Mm -hmm. And
14: chapter two leapt up to me with the lynching of... Silas Hoskins. And how could I not see how important the lynching of Silas Hoskins was to my father? But that's how people mature, even as elders. And I then realized that Silas Hoskins had been very, very important to my father, even though he had not spoken about silas to me as you know parents protect their children
5: right yes right, right.
14: right. he was 9 years old incredible 9 years old when it happened yeah. and he writes in black boy i've got to read it to you because it's so extraordinary he says there was no funeral there was no music There was no period of mourning. There were no flowers. There were only silence, quiet weeping, whispers, and fear. I did not know when or where Uncle Hoskins was buried. Mm. Aunt Maggie was not even allowed to see his body, nor was she able to claim any of his assets.
5: Mm.
14: Uncle Hoskins had simply been plucked from our midst, and we figuratively had fallen on our faces to avoid looking into that white-hot face of terror that we knew loomed somewhere above us. And this is where, (laughs) incredible, he says, this was as close as white terror had ever come to me, and my mind reeled, why had we not fought back, I asked my mother, and the fear that was in her made her slap me into silence.
15: Oh, my goodness. You know, and I don't think that was an isolated scenario, I've heard similar stories in terms of Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the families and the elders didn't talk about what was happening because the perpetrators were still walking around, you know exactly. what I mean? And exactly, fear. The, uh, yeah, the fear. fear. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. You know, so you eventually, you know, made the connection. I know uh, that just very recently uh, there was a memorialization with respect to your uncle, kind of like closing uh, the chapter. Can you just briefly tell us about that? And also, this happened maybe I think about three years before the huge massacre in Elaine, Arkansas. Yes. Uh,
14: Silas, like many farmers in Arkansas, was a landowner. Now, this is so important because some of the narratives that are being put out now is that it was only a question of sharecroppers, but it wasn't only sharecroppers. It was sharecroppers and landowners or sharecroppers. Yes. Sharecroppers who were on the point coming landowners, Mm. but this ownership of black land was becoming a very important phenomenon in the South, after World War I, when black soldiers had come back, thinking they were entitled, which they were, mm-hmm. to equality, for having made so many sacrifices for their country, and mm-hmm. they were buying land. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this is the narrative that is being suppressed, the land ownership. Why? Because... We are entitled to reparations about Thanks. that loss. I say,
15: yes. you get it. You're, You're, yeah. You know yeah, that's yeah, thing Yeah, 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 yeah. So that
14: yeah. that's that's where. The, not only that, sister. The other thing I'm thinking is, we want money, but getting land. Yeah. Is so powerful, isn't Malcolm it? Malcolm
15: said land is the basis of freedom of independence. The RNA said the struggle is for land. Free to land. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. And, you know, and, I know that your uncle, your great uncle, was a, a, a booming business owner. And basically the white folks were envious. And and that's, you know, Ida B. Wells used to talk about that, about that envy. It wasn't rape of white women or any of that. Sort of thing. It was white people being envious of the um uh of the economic aggrandizement uh of black folks and their
14: independence. There that that they could do it on their themselves like Tulsa. That is it. Black independence. Well,
15: Mama uh, Julia, before we continue, because when we come back on the other side, I want you to talk about the memorialization and the soil gathering that just happened. But I just want to let our listeners know that you're listening to WPFW FM Pacifica Radio. This is my new show, Human Rights and Justice, and we are in the Pacifica Fundraising Drive Right here, right now, we want to encourage you I want to personally encourage you to pick up the phone and call and make a donation to w p f w call two o two I got it right here two o two um I well let's just talk about one eight hundred one eight hundred two 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 nine seven three nine that's one eight hundred two 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 nine seven three nine and and donate they've given me. Uh, six hundred dollars to raise during this time, and I have a little promo for you for those who donate a hundred dollars or more. I have my memoir that came out last year called Black Power, Black Lawyer: My Audacious Quest for uh, Justice. So, anyone who donates a hundred dollars or more will get that uh, promo. But there are also other promos that WPFW uh, has uh, as well. So, pick up the phone and dial one eight
5: hundred two
15: two two. 9739. And if you want to join to be part of this conversation to raise a question or comment for the great Julia Wright, you can dial 202 588 0893. So, Julia, go on now and continue and let us know about what just happened in Montgomery, Alabama, at Mike oh. Stevenson's Legacy and Lynching Museum and how that connected with Silas Hoffman. That is such
14: a beautiful story, sister. You know what? I had I I had it down because I realized that due to my age and due to the pandemic I would not be able to travel and touch that earth. And that was important to me because there's a spiritual side to me and I needed to touch the earth where my ancestor had been lynched and I could not do that. So I reached out to some advisors who were spiritual. I reached out to uh, somebody who's was uh, Indian, native Indian. I reached out to Spirit Child, whom you know. I reached out to a Buddhist, and I created my own personal whatever, and I watched via Zoom what happened in Elaine and the magic happened. The magic was the people in Elaine made a most beautiful decision. It was beyond me. I should have relaxed and let them do it. Why worry? They did it. Do you know what they did?
15: What did they do? Tell us.
14: Chose the children to collect the soil. Mm. The children who were the descendants mm. of the 1919 massacre.
5: Mm-hmm. And the, what soil
15: was this that they were collecting? Sorry? What soil was this they were collecting? It's, the soil from where? Well,
14: the it all started with Brian Stevenson's uh, decision to incorporate uh, Silas Hoskins' memorialization mm-hmm. in the Lynching Museum in Montgomery. And we thanked him for that. Okay. So he has a uh, procedure whereby uh, the soil is gathered throughout the country on lynching sites.
5: Right.
15: Soil yes.
14: is gathered in jars and is then taken to the lynching museum. Yes, and where, I think
15: those jars on, yes. you know, up on the shelves. Yeah. You so Silas me. Hoskins jar, the soil from the area in which he was lynched to where he lived or where he worked, is now part of that museum in Montgomery, Alabama. It soon
14: will be. We will be told when the exhibit will be opened. But the beauty of it is that the children were chosen to collect the soil. So when I saw that happening, I let it all go. It was beautiful. I wasn't sad anymore. The children were doing it for me. I mean, that is what it's all about, letting the children take over.
15: Absolutely, and and these de- are the de- actual de- descendants. And, Mama um, I mean, Julia, did you write a poem about that? I mean, you every almost every day. Whenever I hear from you, I see or hear a new poem. But about the memorialization of that soil uh, gathering, I'm just curious whether there's something that you penned with respect to that. Uh, that memorialization. Uh, I
14: I only have one poem here. I'm. I'm very modest about my poems. I But they uh, are so good. I, I you know.
15: Woman King with the Queens. And you, I mean, it's like, <laughs> I say, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Poem, okay. Essays, you okay. Can... To let you know how
14: worried I was that I would not be able to touch the soil or that Silas was not going to be memorialized. I'm going to read you one poem I wrote uh, that was written on June 25th of last year, Taking Care of Bones.
15: And while you're getting ready to read that, I want to remind people that they can call 1-800-222-9739 or 202-588-9739 to donate uh, to WPFW. Let's hear this poem about the bones.
14: Okay, Taking Care of Bones. All right. When I was a fast life child, my elders knew better than to force me to listen to the dreadful wisdom they patiently buried in time for me to exhume. My father was no longer here when I unwrapped the delta red, noose-ribboned, death-day Gifts of truth he left for me, but I now know he knew I would be one of millions who would claim Antigone's law Mm. and impatiently take care of bones.
15: Wow. You are absolutely prolific to take care of bones. Uh, you know, there's another theme I wanted to go on and address right now. I, I know you were uh, earlier talking about black boy, and um, I saw something at one point that a senator uh, who opposed just about every single, excuse me, not just about every single anti-lynching bill, he used to brag that he had, and if I'm going to, I don't know if I want to say the actual words, I don't ever use that word, but he said something to the fact of, quote, he had some fried NIGGEA steak for breakfast, and he (laughs) quoted in the congressional record as saying that Richard Wright's autobiography was, quote, oh, my gosh, he said, the dirtiest, filthiest, lousiest, more obscene piece of writing that he's ever seen in print, and I know you say that soon you're probably going to see the banning of black boy Richard Wright's autobiography, but right now I understand you you discovered that Native Son has actually been banned. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes.
14: Um, I think my father would be laughing. I I can read you a poem on that. Uh, But, you know, my take on that is this is very serious. We can laugh about it, but this is very serious. Mm -hmm. Because part of genocide Mm -hmm. is to suppress our voices. Absolutely. Our voice is part of our body. Mm -hmm. In fact, if they can delete our voice, well, maybe they don't have to kill us. Maybe they can just put us behind bars and let us rot.
15: By imprisonment.
14: Yes, Mm -hmm. by incarceration. Mm -hmm.
15: So this is, you know,
14: I heard somebody once say, You know, how many lives does a cat have? Uh, They killed uh, Martin Luther King three times, Mm. uh, once by uh, smearing his character, Mm
5: -hmm.
14: to uh, the second time by assassinating him, and the third time by diluting his message. And making him seem uh, how'd you say, bleached?
15: Right. Yeah, that's the proper term, yes.
14: Right. Well, so there's genocide, but there's also that internal genocide that they commit against each one of these freedom fighters by killing them several times. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Like they did Martin Luther King, like they try to do against every writer whose book is banned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's another assassination of the person. Mm -hmm. So to me, you know what I say? I say it's torture. Mm
15: -hmm.
14: It's cruel and unusual.
15: Mm -hmm. These are all violations of international law.
14: Right, Mm -hmm. right. Mm
15: -hmm.
14: However... I do have a poem okay. where I quote one of my father's favorite poems. He loved Howard Nutt, who wrote. I don't know that name. Okay. It, it, he's sort of an old poet. He, okay. He's not our generation. He's a, he's not your generation. <laughs> he's hardly mine. <laughs> okay. So this is what Howard Nutt, Nutt wrote anticipation of disaster has its own sort of special laughter. And my father absolutely loved those lines. Mm. So this is what I wrote about the banning of Native Son, which I think you read. Mm -hmm. If books banned were Pandora's boxes, then the white supremacists have brought upon themselves many live curses, till then curled up in the dust of metaphors and reigned in literary words. My father's native son was just censored again and unboxed, leaving bigger unchained, free to roam and haunt the land, free to share the wisdom of his insight into their darkness Richard Wright our common ancestor is laughing his special kind of laughter because he sees a wealth of unintended consequences their madness cannot close
15: wow profound um you know what what's that can I tell you a story uh, yes, tell us a story, and just before you tell, I just want to um, thank the. a couple of people who have donated, but they don't, I don't see any names here to thank. <laughs> we have several donations here, so I'll just uh, 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 comprehensively thank you, but leave your name so I can thank you online. And for those who don't recall, you can dial 202-588-9739 to donate to WPFW or 1-800-222-9739. And if you want to call in... Or a question or a comment, you can call 202 588 3 Okay, go on, Julia Wright, daughter of Richard Wright, poet and essayist in your own right. Talk to okay. us. Okay.
14: So this story I would call The Law of Unintended Consequences. Okay. And it begins this way. Uh, Frantz Fanon treated... Both the officers in the French colonial army who tortured the Algerians, and he treated the freedom fighters. Mm
5: -hmm.
14: That was so amazing Mm -hmm. about him. So one day, a white army officer who was engaged in torturing, was referred to Frantz Fanon because he had a nervous breakdown. So he walks into Frantz Fanon's office and complains. I have headaches, migraine, I can't sleep, insomnia, and I have these terrible nightmares. What can I do, Doctor. And Frantz Fanon says to him, "Uh, you know, I'd prescribe a vacation. And the soldier says, but I can't take a vacation. I've just come back from my vacation. And Frantz Fanon says very gently to his patient, "Uh, no, I'm afraid I didn't mean that sort of vacation I mean, you should take a vacation from torture.
5: I was, mm, 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 mm,
15: mm. was that in Wretched of the Earth? I, I don't know where it was. it was.
14: It might be. Yeah, uh, during yeah, my
15: eventful. during yeah. my
14: trip with Foreman that I heard it from yeah. one of Fanon's friends. Anyway, that is so beautiful because it made me think. Well, these people who engage in torture and who are sick with it, that's the law of unintended consequences. Mm
5: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
14: It's not our problem. It's their problem. And they are saddled, engaged in it, and they reap the neurosis and the PTSD of it, and it's their karma.
15: Well, it's interesting because this is a great seg- segue to the next theme I want to discuss, which is the torture, okay, of Emmett uh, Till and mm. the movie, the the documentary that's about to come out. I'm not quite sure though. I mean, I don't know. I know Franz Fanon, um, psychiatrist, and came up with all these um, uh, great theories and that that were factual. But I'm wondering, did the people, the men who tortured 14-year-old Emmett Till, were they suffering? did they ever suffer from PTSD? I mean, the woman, Carolyn Bryant, the wife, the one who said that that was him, uh, okay, who was in the truck that night as well, identified him, to, for him to come out. I don't, I don't know. Was she suffering from post-traumatic? I mean, I don't know what you might think about that, but I know that there's this documentary coming up real soon that I yeah. can't wait to see. And I know you and I talk Um, frequently about Mamie Till Mobley and her courageous stance about opening up that casket for the world to see what uh, uh, racism and genocide did to her son. What are some of your reflections with respect to Emmett Till, Mamie, uh, Till Mobley, and this upcoming um, image Till documentary. And before you do, I'm just looking. We have only $380 worth to go. Thank you for everyone who's donated so far. I don't know who you are, but hopefully you told the uh, engineer if you wanted a, uh, a copy of Black Power, uh, Black Lawyer, or any of the other promos. So go on, Julia Rice. This is Human Rights and Justice, host Nikichi Taifa, my esteemed guest, Julia Wright, she's going to talk to us about her reflections on Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, in this upcoming documentary.
14: So Emmett Till is a mind-blowing, soul-blowing case for Mm -hmm. all of us. Because just when we think of it, there has been no justice for 67 years. Mm-hmm. Yet it has sparked the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. which was a movement inspired by the horror of what happened. And yet, 67 years later, in spite of that movement, there has been no justice. Mm-hmm. So the insult of that is torture in itself. Mm. It's, it's, it's like saying, it's as if the white supremacists are saying to us, your whole civil rights movement was for nothing
5: mm.
14: because we're still denying justice. Mm-hmm.
12: Mm-hmm.
14: The other thought I have is a law has been named after him.
15: Mhm finally, uh, I mean good grief, yes, <laughs>
14: yes, <laughs> oh, yes, but the but justice is still tonight,
5: yeah, to him, mhm,
14: that also is more than a slap, it's tortuous, mm-hmm. and my heart goes out to the family,, mm-hmm. the brunt they bear, I mean, to them. Our family bearing Silas is nothing. They have had to bear Emmett Till and the denial of justice for 67 years with so much grace, so much forbearance, so much faith that I can only sit at their feet.
5: Mm.
14: So that's what I wanted to say. Now, about the film, I have not seen it. I know that there have been advanced criticism, uh, which I can well understand from what direction they would come from, Uh, but I won't um, prejudge because I can't prejudge. However, I've heard that some people say the past is the past, let bygones be bygones. My reply to that is, uh, "Have you heard of the phrase "Gone with the wind?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay.
14: The other criticism or pre-criticism I've heard is, uh you uh the film offers black trauma for, for profit." <laughs> and my goodness if people can say that who invented black trauma for profit in the first place mm-hmm,
5: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
14: mm-hmm. we go back to the lynchings and the picnics and the postcards that everybody paid for to take home the troph- trophies
15: the yeah trophies meaning a body parts of fingers and ears and genital parts. I mean, the depravity, the torture, the genocide is just unfathomable. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And
14: fast forwarding to recent times, we go to the monetized bones of the MOVE children oh my used goodness, yeah. to teach mm-hmm. forensic anthropology mm-hmm. in Universities in Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Uh, We fast forward to the skulls of um, Pancho Villa and uh, Geronimo Mm
5: -hmm.
14: who are, that are archived Mm -hmm. in Yale by Skull and Bones. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, who enjoys black trauma for profit? Now the I, I,
15: thing,
14: yeah,
15: yeah. I had, I had heard that. Um, um, I had read a review that the makers of the film attract the best. Begin the film and end the film not with trauma, but with family and with joy, etc. Et so I'm really looking forward to see it. So what was your other point you were going to make? My apologies.
14: No, no, no. I go in that direction. In fact, you, you're you saying what I was trying to say, and that is what I heard is uh, the focus is on Mamie, her courage, the courage of black motherhood yeah. that we sit at the feet
5: of.
15: Yeah. And my understanding is that the family has, in fact, endorsed uh, the film, and I can't wait to see it. I think it comes out on the 14th. Uh, of October, so I'm looking forward to it. And every time you say 67, 67, 67, I was five months old when that brutal um, torture and murder. Uh, occurred And it just left such a profound impact on me that this was in my lifetime. And I'm looking at the numbers. You know, folks, so please come on and call in to uh, support this radio station, WPFW, your station for jazz and justice. We still have $380 to go. For those who donate over $100 or more, uh, you'll be able to get a free copy, a gift copy of my memoir, Black Power, Black Lawyers, My Audacious Quest for justice, and there are other uh, promos as well. There's an indigenous people's um, uh, promo uh, that's there uh, that includes contemporary Native American experience and many other things. Russell Means is in there. The case of Leonard Peltier is in there. Um, That's also for a donation of $100. And for a donation of $200, there is a a flash drive, Voices Who Changed the World, with Martin Luther King, Malcolm Benny Lou Hamer, Alice Walker, Norm Chomsky, the list goes on uh, and on. So please donate. Call 202-588-9739. The engineers are standing by or dial 1-800-222-9739. And if you want to call in to um, speak with our guest, Julia Wright, the daughter of, of esteemed author Richard Wright, dial 202. Five eight eight zero eight nine three. but I want to go to my last theme right now because I know you're all up into the switch, you know what I'm saying? Because whenever I hear anything about international and Mumia Abu-Jamal, I automatically think of the great Julia Wright. So tell us, how did you happen to become involved with advocacy around uh, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal and um, uh, other cases of um, our Um, political prisoners?
14: Well, I think Mumia had heard that I had been to Algiers with Kathleen and Eldridge and Mumia was working in Philadelphia under the Ministry of Information of the Panthers. So he would have heard of my presence in Algiers. Um, Also, maybe uh he had read Soul on Ice by then and uh about Richard Wright. He had probably read Richard Wright's books. Anyway, he wrote to my mother and myself in Paris and um asked if we could uh help prove his innocence.
5: Mm-hmm. And
14: uh we my mother and I instantly understood what, what was happening. I mean, we did not need a drawing or or, 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 or we, we did not. We, we understood because Richard had been a victim of the premises of COINTELPRO.
5: Mm-hmm.
14: Even before COINTELPRO had a name, Richard had been a victim of McCarthyism McCarthy. in Paris.
15: Yes. And for those who might not know, the COINTELPRO was the FBI's once secret, quite illegal campaign to attempt to disrupt and destroy movements in general and the black movement in uh, particular and never meant to be um, disseminated to the public at large. It was later found out that this was basically a coordinated national program of war against black movements. So go on, for Julia. You
14: know what?
15: I have a nuggets
14: for you tonight. All right. A pure nuggets. Okay, I dug it up especially for you, sister. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, this is my father facing the premises of Cointelpro, and I want you to know how my father dealt with it.
5: <laughs> I laugh even rap. before
14: reading it, right? Planted. You see, he would go to cafes, and yeah. he realized that uh, Joseph McCarthy had sent two of his envoys to Paris, David Shine and Roy Cohen, to check out whether in France, in the libraries, there was communist literature written by Americans. Mm-hmm. And to check out expatriates, American expatriates, amongst which my father. Mm-hmm. Okay. They would, uh, these these spies of McCarthy <laughs> would hang out in the cafes where black Americans would uh, gather.
5: Mm-hmm.
14: Wright planted the seed for a coal at his apartment by David Schein. Seated with Chester Himes in a cafe frequented by Americans, Richard looked around and then said that everything spoken there was sent back to the McCarthy com- committee.
5: Mm-mm-mm.
14: Chester laughed, and Richard said he would prove it. He raised his voice lightly, and described an easy method by which to transmit secret messages to the U.S. A writer would send certain page numbers of his manuscript, and on those pages, sprinkled in dialogue would be the code information. A month later, when Richard had forgotten the entire episode, Shine paid him a visit at his apartment. Shine questioned him as to how he numbered his manuscript pages. Richard felt he would burst with laughter, but he kept a calm face and very soberly explained to Shine, quote, "Well, I just number them one, two, three, four, and." so on, through to the end of the story, unquote. He would, that's the way he acted. He would uh, call the waiter in the cafe and say to the waiter, go and serve them a cup of coffee and tell them it's from Richard Wright.
15: Wow. So letting them know that he knew who they were and where they were. Okay. Okay
14: back to Mumia. So we understood, we understood what was happening because Richard had been through it. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I got involved. Uh Mm
5: -hmm.
14: Knowing, knowing, fully knowing that it was a frame up, Mm
5: -hmm. that
14: I read the COINTELPRO papers Mm -hmm. and I read the quote that has now become famous. Mumia is intelligent,
5: mm-hmm.
14: has no criminal record,
5: mm-hmm. but it
14: is the nature of his writings mm-hmm. that explain, that justify our placing him on the National Security Index.
15: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and Mumia, when he went to prison, I mean, he was young. See, Mumia is like maybe a year older than I am. Okay, and, you know, it's like the repression that has been put upon people who simply were fighting for freedom. You know, we have Mumia Bujamal, we have Mutulu Shakur, people who are elders now who are dying, basically dying in prison, Brother Varanza Bowers, Leonard Peltier. I mean, this is Indigenous Peoples Month right now. I mean, there is absolutely no reason why these elders should be remaining in prison, Imam Jamil Al- Al-Amin, and the list goes on. I mean, we've been able to bring some people home, you know, Sundiata Akoli a- a- and uh, Herman Bell and J- 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 Jaleel Mutakim and Geronimo uh, and the like, but there is absolutely no reason. In fact, I always felt that there should be um, a pardon, exoneration for all of those who are victims of the COINTELPRO.
14: Uh, absolutely yes. prisoners of war yes exactly. absolutely yeah. i i agree with you sister and uh i deeply believe that the intention of the state again i i repeat myself but i believe it is tortuous i'll tell you why the the, the legal injustice system protracts the appeals. It mm-hmm. makes the appeals an endless process. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, death by incarceration destroys their health day by day by day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that the we have a contradiction between the time it takes for the appeals to go through, and the uncertain prognosis of our elders dying behind bars. And that to me, again, is cruel and unusual.
15: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. And, you know, we're going to be coming to a close really soon. I'm just looking at the chart now. It hasn't budged since we still need 380 to go. I hope the engineers are there because I know people are calling in. I mean, I just know they are. So I hope that the engineers are there to be able to field these calls that are coming in to donate to WPFW, your station for jazz and justice. The phone number if you're outside of the D.C. area is 1-800-222-9739. Go on and call and make your donations. So we can continue to have commercial-free radio. You can also dial 202-588-9739. You know, again, you can get the promo, Black Power, Black Lawyer, My Audacious Quest for uh, Justice. I mean, we can continue to have programs like this, such as Julia uh, Wright. I mean, many folks might not even know that she's living in Paris. Okay, she's been in Paris. This is where she was born, but she comes here often. She's always in tune with what is going on here uh, in this country. And in a moment, I'm going to give you any last um, re- re- words or remarks that you might want to make, but I just want to remind people that you're listening to Human Rights and Justice, hosted by myself, Nikichi Taifa. And, again, pick up that phone and dial 1-800-222-9739 or 202-588-9739. And real quick, Julia, I know that there's another type of appeal, uh, an Underground Railroad healthcare type appeal. I don't know if you so – I'm, I'm going to bring you back in about a month to talk about um, that, but I don't know if you want to say one very quick word before we just um, totally close out this show today. Uh,
14: Please, as many – of you as you can, be in front of the court in Philly on October 19th, because
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was an extensive uh, interview uh, with uh, the legendary Julia Wright, uh, the daughter of uh, none other than uh, Richard Wright, uh, the novelist, essayist. And uh, that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October the 30th, 2022. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay in touch with some of the most progress- progressive, burning, and pressing issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of none other than Wes Montgomery, live, Twisted Blues. This is Abayomi Azigaway signing off, and have a beautiful week. <laughs>